Hi everyone, my name's Tom, Tom Campbell. Um, I'm a maths teacher, um, but I also do quite a lot of sports history. I mainly work on um, the interaction between class and football. Um, I've also worked on um, the history of Regency boxing and its interaction with race and with class. Um, but I'm going to be talking to you today about um, the main subject of my research, which is the class history of football hooliganism since the 1980s. So I think to start with, um, it's important to talk about how I came to this research about football hooliganism in the 1980s um, and the political um, aspects of it. Um, so I'm a Liverpool fan and I remember growing up watching documentaries about Hillsborough, hearing about it from my family who are from Liverpool, um, and then watching the footage and, and hearing that John Motson commentary. And even at the time, John Motson puts it exactly right. And, you know, he says there doesn't seem to be any crowd trouble. Um, he, he gives a very detailed account of what's going on. Um, but then reading about everything that came afterwards, the lies um, from the police, from the press, from the politicians and and the complete lack of will to try and fix that over the following 25, 30 years. Um, even to this day, you know, the senior match commander, David Duckenfield, still hasn't been held to account for what he did then on that day. And I think that growing up as a Liverpool fan, going to matches and, and hearing chants like, always the victims, it's never your fault, um, and things like that really really pushed me in a, in the direction of wanting to understand what was going on in the 80s and having a real sense of injustice as well. And so even from the start of my undergraduate, I went to Durham University. Um, and in my first year of my undergraduate, I, uh, I did a module on working class, social and cultural history. And at the end of that undergraduate um, module, I had to write a 5,000 word essay and I decided to write about football for me because that is the epitome of working class in, uh, culture in the 20th century. Um, and I, I was writing kind of this piece that has now been published even, even back then in my first year of my undergraduate. I came back to it um, in my master's working with Kai Schiller and um, that really was... Um, the sort of chrysalis of my academic thought um, about sport history. It, it pushed me into this world um, of sports history conferences of the BSSH. Um, and I went out and I decided that I read a lot of the, um, you know, I read a lot of the, of the literature and I felt that fans were really not present um, in the story of football hooliganism. I felt that the story, you know, it's been told from above, you know, we know about the policing, we know about the journalism, we know about the politics, but the experience of supporters was really not taken into account. And I think that to understand what was going on in the 80s, you had to listen to those supporters. So as part of the project, I went to speak to um, a series of supporters, a small group of supporters um, from different clubs, from Fulham, from Sunderland, from Liverpool. And I also spoke to people who'd been at Heisel, um, and at Hillsborough. So I, while there was just a small group, I did feel like I was getting a good range of views. Um, 
and I think that as as that, I, you know, this was coming to the end of the of the twenty tens, and I think that the eighties became sort of a parallel for me for what was going on. You know, the culture war of today is nowhere near the culture war of the nineteen eighties. You know, um, and the class conflict that we're sort of seeing, the economic strife that we're seeing today, is nothing compared to the eighties. You know, the, the civil disobedience, the riots, the militant council that was set up in Liverpool um, and, the, and the cultural issues, the social issues, you know, the, the replication of Section 28 in the current government's um, proposals around transgender and non-binary children. Um, it really felt, it really feels today that this research and, and this period is relevant because the current government are using the Thatcher playbook um, and I started to think about the idea of gay and lesbian people, working class people, the Irish football fans as part of one united um, enemy within for that Thatcher government. I'd read lots of people who had alluded to this. Um, I'd seen documentaries where the parallels had been made, but I found that no one was actually trying to show a link between the two things. Um, I think that you can see this even in the late 70s. The Tom Robinson band um, have a song called Power in the Darkness. And it alludes to this idea um, saying it's about time that we said enough is enough and saw a return to the traditional British values of discipline, morality and freedom. Freedom from the Reds, the Blacks and the criminals, prostitutes, pansies and punks, football hooligans, juvenile delinquents, lesbians and left-wing scum. So when I, um, so I think all of these ideas uh, were milling around in my head, and after the masters, I refreshed the um, the essay, the dissertation. Um, I made it a lot shorter, and um, I was lucky enough to have that published last year um, in Sport and History. And this paper is, is really about trying to show the pa- that there's not only a parallel between the conflicts between the unions and football fans in the 1980s, but that the Thatcher government actually saw them as one unified conflict with the working class having a, an economic aspect in the strikes, but also a cultural aspect in the way that football fans were being dealt with. Um, so studies of football hooliganism during this period are focused on exploring the aggressive response to football hooliganism which the government pursued through vicious rhetoric, authoritarian legislation and tough policing. Many accounts picked up the work that was begun by Stuart Hall again in the 1970s, which focused on the press narratives that were taking shape around hooliganism. But even in, even in, the, in the late 70s, there were still press narratives that were more sympathetic to hooliganism. There is a, a BBC Panorama documentary which um, displays football hooligans as people who are um, who have positive and negative points about them, they have a football hooligan who um, his job is that he works in a nursery, and they show a very positive um, demonstration of him. So that press narrative is coming out in the seventies, um, but it really comes out in the eighties. And Ian Taylor continues that research as early as 1982 and argues that the incoming Thatcher government had brought with it an authoritarian populist rhetoric that intensified the public's vitriol towards hooligans and was being supported by the press who were creating a moral panic. 
This argument has been driven home by successive academics who have argued that the reporting of hooliganism focused less and less on the events themselves and became increasingly inflammatory, with many papers speculating on the causes of the issue and inflating its scope. Several studies have used Margaret Thatcher's rhetoric to argue that she had a personal vendetta against hooliganism and have identified this as part of a political style that revolved around conflict as well as a focus on public order. Official inquiries, such as the Taylor Report, have found that the legislation that was introduced made little positive impact on the safety of matches. Rather, as John Williams argues, the safety of football fans was outweighed by the need to control hooligans, with fans viewed only through the lens of potential hooliganism. Murphy, Williams and Dunning expanded this point by arguing that for the state and the media, football itself had become a social problem. Waiton has furthered this position by arguing that while the press had previously vilified hooligans, they took on conservative wisdom about scum football fans and expanded their attack to question the moral character of all supporters. History of the 1984-85 minor strike had been almost unanimous that the government were determined to make the strike a demonstration of who's boss, effectively breaking union power by allowing the strike to last longer to show their resolve. This position is broadly agreed upon by historians of the strike, and right-wing commentators also see it as a conflict over union power. Amongst others, Selden has argued that Thatcher was personally intent on dismantling the unions, and Riddle has argued that the government's legislation drastically reduced trade union powers, and that their rhetoric demonised and isolated the industrial working class. The police were the front lines of this social economic change and became known as Maggie's Army. There have been studies which have connected the government's treatment of trade unions with that of football hooliganism. The first to do so was Taylor, who wrote that the sharp reaction against football hooliganism has been paralleled by a striking toughening in popular attitudes towards the working class in 1982. One of the first to make comparisons with the miners' strike itself was Richard Giulianotti, who wrote in passing that the increase in authoritarian policy towards football after 1985 was part of a prime ministerial crusade against the enemy within, reusing Thatcher's term for the NUM, the National Union of Mine Workers. McCardle also described the membership card scheme as part of the Prime Minister's ceaseless crusade against the enemy within, be they football fans, striking miners or the unemployed, but does not devote further analysis to this comparison. This is a theme that is repeated in the discourse, with brief allusions to the similarities between the responses to hooliganism in the miners' strike, but without much critical analysis. We see this also in Armstrong and Young, who wrote that the, dem- that the demonization of, fo- of football fandom occurred in parallel with Thatcherism, with its denial of any form of display of, cult- of collective working-class culture. Waiton takes this further by making the connection between the treatment of football fans and trade unions with that of the IRA, which portrayed them as violent deviants. However, these studies only make this comparison in passing comments and lack substantial analysis, or refer to mere parallels between the issues. I want to deliver a more detailed comparison that fleshes out these illusions and treats these issues as a single conflict with the industrial working class. Historians of the miners' strike have always seen this conflict as a purely economic clash, but by including football, we can see that it has a cultural element and that this was a a part of a unified strategy.
By the end of the 1970s, politicians and the press were seeing football hooliganism as a moral problem. The debate was not so black and white as it had been in, as it became in the 80s. And as I said, there were still arguments between being made that football hooligans were often normal, good-natured, moral people who eventually outgrew a violent youth. The Thatcher government took a hard-line view on hooliganism, and their rhetoric became more aggressive following the 1985 Hillsborough disaster. Thatcher called the violence calculated and mindful, while ignoring the contributing factors of the poor organisation of the stadium, officials and emergency services. This was accompanied with a flurry of policies to deal with hooliganism that the Taylor Report would later call a sledgehammer to crack a nut. The miners' strike began after the government reduced coal subsidies, closed 20 collieries and cut 20,000 jobs. Thatcher had prepared by stockpiling coal and legislating against the unions with the 1980 Employment Act, fearing a, a repeat of 1974, where the NUM had brought down the last Conservative government. The government mobilised thousands of police officers to combat the strike, and by March 1985, when the strike was defeated, six had died, hundreds had been injured, and thousands had been arrested. The rhetoric used by the government to describe strikers and football fans is eerily similar. Both are described as a fifth column, who are actively working to undermine the British state. Thatcher publicly equated the NUM with Libyan and Palestinian terrorists, and, Chan and Chancellor Nigel Lawson said preparing for the strike was like arming to face the threat of Hitler. The Foreign Secretary continued this theme, saying that Scargill was taking his stormtroopers to the USSR for training in how to subvert our democratic, legal and economic systems. Thatcher compared the conflict with the Falklands War, saying that having defeated the enemy without, we must now defeat the enemy within and warned that Scargill was ready to lead his troops into battle against the nation. Minister Norman Fowler called it a full-scale battle, from which the government would never countenance surrendering. Football was similarly described by Thatcher as a disgrace to Britain, and a corruption that needed to be purged from society. And just like with the strike, she described matches as battles, and as territorial warfare. Thatcher portrayed football as an anti-British corruption, and she did this with the unions, saying it used to as she did with the unions, saying that football used to be our national game. This was solidified in the Conservative Party's campaign guide, which described hooliganism as the British disease. Both the unions and football fans were compared with the IRA to present the idea of a working class fifth column, which Thatcher referred to as the forces of disorder. Thatcher described the IRA as the enemies of democracy and freedom, while saying that the NUM was trying to subvert British democracy, and in one speech said that at one end of the spectrum we have terrorist gangs within our borders, at the other, at the, other are the hard left operating inside our system, conspiring to use union power to break, defy and subvert our laws. Chief Constable James Anderson repeated, repeated these claims calling the strike terrorism without the bullet or the bomb. The language used to describe the IRA, the unions and football supporters often sought to dehumanising to humanise them, calling them savages or animals. Thatcher also referred to hooligans alongside terrorists in one of her speeches, directly linking them with organisations like the IRA. These comparisons portrayed strikers and hooligans not simply as dissidents or threats to public order, 
but as a fifth column working to undermine Britain. Thatcher regularly mentioned football alongside trade unionism in her rhetoric, pledging to restore standards of behaviour on football terraces and in relations between men and managers. She presented strikers as a violent mob and legitimised her authoritarian policies by arguing the miners were trying to substitute the rule of the mob for the rule of the law. Thatcher took the same line against hooliganism, telling the Conservative Party Central Council that I am talking about the war against crime in our society, about the soccer hooligans smashing up a football ground in its neighbourhood. She said that both strikers and hooligans relied on the same strategies and grouped them together as criminals. She argued that hooliganism and unions both used large enough numbers to bully or intimidate others and relied on collective anonymity, saying it does not matter whether those numbers are mobilised by football hooligans, political agitators or industrial pickets. Crime is no less crime just because it is committed en masse. Thatcher refuted the well-known links between hooliganism and neo-Nazis. Instead, the year after the strike, Thatcher gave an interview on hooliganism, saying that we were seeing very ugly scenes before we had this period of football violence. Very ugly scenes and very ugly trade union scenes. This rhetoric was borne out in legislation that treated hooligans and strikers as part of the same problem. The 1984 Criminal Evidence Act gave police powers to deal with hooliganism and pickets, and to stop and search any person or vehicle. Home Secretary Douglas Hurd announced the Public Order Act in 1986, and said it would be used to deal with pickets and hooligans, and this was emphasised in the Conservative Party campaign guide. The Act created charges for using abusive language or being disorderly, and legislated that mass gatherings could only operate in spaces agreed with the police in advance. The Act allowed police to kettle, contain and control the movements of mass gatherings. The authoritarian measures that had been used during the strike were also used in football, with the introduction of CCTV and alcohol bans in 1985. The proposed 1989 Football Spectators Act would have also forced fans to carry membership cards and implied that all supporters needed to be monitored. Most evocatively, fences were introduced at all football stadia. This meant that fans were pictured behind bars like criminals or animals, and this made them feel, as one fan told me, a bit animalistic, because obviously you became caged in. This legitimated aggressive policing on both strikes and football matches. Having raised their pay, the police became known as Maggie's Army, and over 8,000 were deployed at any one time to deal with the strike. In a similar way, Thatcher said that football matches were only able to be played with a huge police presence. Police arrested and held strikers and fans with little to no justification, and regularly used stop-and-search tactics. Just as strikers were kettled by police, fans were surrounded and controlled by them. The police were given powers to escort supporters from coaches and train stations to designated pubs and onto the stadium. As one fan put it, herding them like cattle. These were sentiments repeated by the Taylor Report, saying that the ordinary law-abiding supporter travelling away is caught up in a police operation reminiscent of a column of prisoners of war being marched and detained under guard. Abuse was common from police, both on the picket line and at football matches. It was common for police to goad strikers 
And in the winter of 1984, officers would sarcastically ask picketers, what's your kid getting for Christmas? One Hillsborough survivor told me that even as he escaped the pens of the Leppings Lane end, he was called a fucking twat by an officer. And another told me that when he, want, he once asked to be allowed to leave a terrace to use the toilet, he was told to fuck off and piss on the terrace. And the Taylor Report found that this sort of contempt was commonplace. Fans and strikers had to deal with brutality from the police on a regular basis. One Derbyshire miner recalled, They were awful. They'd split your skull soon as look at you. The strike saw systematic use of cavalry charges, riot gear and police dogs, tactics also common at football matches. This culminated in the Battle of Orgreave, which left 100 miners injured. In an NUM promotional A to Z, S was for sadistic policemen and T was for the truncheons they hit us with. Brutality was often unprovoked. One miner recalled walking home with two friends when a police van stopped next to them. Five officers got out and beat them up, breaking his friend's nose. Another miner remembers that as they were congregating, six police vans met them with police full of riot in riot gear. And as a young miner ran away, he was hit in the face with a baton and arrested. Football fans' failure to comply with police escorts could lead to violent repercussions too. There are examples of fans who refuse to leave their allocated pubs, being abused and beaten by officers. And arrested fans would commonly receive a beating in the police van, which would then later be blamed on football hooligans. The police would try and intimidate away supporters, often in the form of sexist abuse, racist abuse, or just giving you a dig. On some occasions, police would even deliberately allow away fans to be beaten up by the local hooligan firms, by sending them the wrong way back to the train station after the game. The press followed the government's line on both football hooliganism and the strike. Thatcher was desperate to keep Rupert Murdoch on side and had directly intervened to support his purchase of the Times and the Sunday Times in 1981. Rupert Murdoch also owned the News of the World and The Sun, Britain's best-read paper. The press, dis- the press subscribed to the government's rhetoric of the uncivilised thug fan. And we see this message in Bill Mellor's 1985 Sun article, where he wrote that the English soccer hooligan is quite possibly the lowest, least sensitive form of life. And terms like thugs, lunatics, animals and scum were commonplace. Nowhere is this more evident and more detestable than following the Hillsborough disaster, which is now well known to be the result of poor policing stadium mismanagement, and the very policies introduced to control hooliganism. However, the government and police blamed football supporters, and this was supported by the press. The Sun infamously ran the headline, The Truth, and claimed that fans had not only been responsible for the disaster, but had picked the pockets of victims, urinated on the brave cops, and on the bodies of the dead and had beat up a police giving the kiss of life. They even alleged that fans had jeered at a dead girl and bragged that they would rape her. These allegations were repeated by most of the press, including some broadsheets. NUM members were also treated as amoral, violent thugs. The Evening Standard in 1984 carried a photo of a strike breaker carrying a shotgun and called it a legitimate form of defence against the pickets. 
Papers openly supported police brutality. An Auburn war writing in The Spectator called the strikers illegal gangs of thugs, roaming bands of outlaws, and even specifically used the term hooligans. The press also follow, follow the government's line by describing both football fans and trade unionists as a fifth column. After, after the Heisel disaster, the press praised Thatcher's new war cabinet, which was set up to deal with hooliganism, and presented hooligans as a military foe. The press widely praised the government's authoritarian policies, and the Times said that matches could only be played with a military-style presence. Simon Jenkins also aligned football hooligans with a fifth column that was an existential threat to the British state by running the headline, British Vandals at the Gapes of Europe, evoking the Vandal Sack of Rome in 455, an attack that came from a people within the empire. And this was a theme copied by the Times, which called hooligans the new barbarians. The miners were attacked with even greater vitriol. The sun called for a shootout and described an army of 8,000 police at battle stations in the bloody pit war against dictator and general Arthur Scargill, who had taken personal command of the militant miners' army. The papers reported that the picket line thugs were armed and displayed a picture of, police of a police superintendent showing off war trophies. They doctored a photo of Scargill, so that he was giving a Nazi salute under the headline Mein Führer, but were prevented from running this by their print workers. The Daily Mail reported that the blue line holds firm, while the Daily Star reported that battle-torn Arthur Scargill yesterday called up his troops, and the Times called the strike an undeclared civil war instigated by Mr Scargill against the rest of society. Even the left-wing Guardian ran a, headline under, ran a headline saying men at the front of Scargill's total war. Many papers also compared the NUM with the Nazis or the USSR. The Times published a letter that said they felt reminded of Nazi Germany in the early days. The Scottish Daily Express reported that Scargill's stormtroopers were terrifying towns. The Daily Mail claimed that the criticism of the police was the standard technique of the communists, and the Times described the NUM as Reds attempting revolution. The press explicitly tied hooliganism to the idea that fans came from these industrial working class backgrounds. After the Bradford Stadium fire, the Sunday Times reported that football, that football was a slum sport played in slum stadiums by slum people. Edward Pierce, writing in the Sunday Times, also described fans to be part uh, of an industrial underclass. The Economist reported that football was tied to the old industrial north, yobs and slum cultures of the stricken inner city areas and called for stadiums with middle class families in mind. Barbara Emil was perhaps the most explicit, writing in the Times that hooliganism was the result of the working class no longer knowing their place. So we should view the treatment of football and the NUM as part of a single conflict with the industrial working class. Thatcher targeted both in the same policies, and her rhetoric sought to demonise football supporters and strikers, portraying them as a fifth column while with the backing of the press and police.
the crux of this is that the responses to hooliganism and trade unionism didn't just take parallel routes, but were the cultural and economic aspects of a single strategy to deal with the industrial working class, rather than a purely economic conflict, as has previously been supposed. It was part of a strategy to portray the industrial working class as an enemy within. I think that with a bit more time and a lot more research, you could start to create more connections in Thatcher's approach to her internal opponents. You could start to see a unified approach in her economic cultural war on, uh, with Irish nationalism, the unions, the disorderly industrial working class, football, gay and lesbian people, fe and feminists. It resulted in some of the worst acts of repression in our modern history and has become the playbook for the destruction of union power, the removal of the right to protests, the attack on transgender and non-binary people, the war on immigration, send back the boats, sending refugees to Rwanda because they're not white Europeans, attacks on the so-called benefits cheats, the destruction of the welfare state. We are living in the second period of Thatcherism in this country. A new enemy within has been created, one to distract from the problems that have been wrought by the Conservative government itself. Thatcher wanted to break the power and solidity of the working class that formed in the first half of the 20th century. Now the Conservatives want to blame the mistakes of unbridled capitalism on the most vulnerable. The Murdoch press are still their lapdogs, stoking hatred and lies, backed up by their first attempt to try and create a Fox News for the UK in the thankfully hapless and unsuccessful GB News. So just as Marx said, history repeats itself the first time in tragedy, the second time in farce. Thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm.